Hey, this is Israel. Here at the river, we're all about the message of the gospel of peace. That the Bible says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel or the good news of peace. So we have good news for you. The war is over. God is not angry at you. God is in love with you. And you can have peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we hope this message is a blessing to you. You can visit us online at theriverdurant.com for more. I told you in 1517 the world changed. 1517, when a guy named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, yeah, 600 years ago, uh, wrote a thesis, wrote a sermon basically with 95 points in it. They call it the 95 Theses. He took a, he took a stance for the message of justification by faith by writing up this lengthy document they got nailed to the Wittenberg Germany castle church door and people began to read it and things began to change someone pulled it down and made copies and pretty soon it was all over the world all over the known world and uh, everything changed what and it sparked what we know as the reformation and out of the reformation was born western civilization the right for men to think for themselves and to even vote for their own I mean, I'm not saying it happened immediately, but it, it began. It was a seedbed seed for self-discipline, self-government uh, in men. That if, if every person could have faith in God, then God could govern that person. And therefore, God could govern a, a home. Therefore, God would, through that, begin to govern cities and nations, city, states, and nations, and so forth. And uh, it, was a, it was a turning point and a very important turning point in history. He had a 95-point thesis. I, uh, <clears throat> I have 32 points that I think are really important points that you don't hear preached enough. And some, sometimes you never hear it at all. And we've been working our way through this. For those of you who are new here, we've been, I've just been doing some teaching. I, I love to preach, but I've been trying to just do some teaching here on Sunday mornings because I teach on Wednesday nights here. I teach at Christ of the Nations all the time. So Sunday mornings, I love to just you know, prepare prepare a uh, homiletical type sermon, an expository type sermon, and, and preach. But I, I feel compelled, Brother Larry, to teach these important issues. And so we've covered nine of them so far. How many of you have been here for all of them? Okay. So we're going we're to be looking at a, at a few more today, beginning with our number 10. Number 10 is... I don't want anybody to get up and run out of the building thinking I'm slamming people, okay? But I just have to say this because it's very important that the body of Christ awaken to these things. If there are no denominations in heaven, this is number 10, they cannot be God's will on earth. If there are no denominations in heaven, they cannot be God's will in earth. Cannot be God's will here. It is just something that we have all learned to tolerate. And they've been around so long that men and women of God have stopped, stopped standing up and speaking against it as though it's wrong. They'll preach about smoking, and the Bible doesn't even say you can't smoke. I'm not giving anybody a license. I'm just telling you it's not in the Bible to preach against that kind of thing. They'll preach against drinking, and the Bible doesn't even say you can't have a glass of wine. It does talk about drunkenness. I'm not giving anybody a license. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm not called to preach anybody's particular doctrine. You see, why I can say that is because I didn't, I didn't agree to somebody's 16-point doctrinal statement. I did not agree. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot of things. I had one preacher who said, man, I hate, I preach against dancing. Why? You're going to hate heaven. You're just going to hate it. You're going to hate that place. They dance in heaven. It's one thing to, <laughs> to preach against what the Bible speaks against, but it's another thing altogether just to make up things to preach against. You're just being negative. You follow me? I want you to understand, I don't have any personal stake in this at all. 
I'm not trying to pick on anybody. If you, ha- if you came from a denomination, you're here visiting us today, you're part of a denomination, I'm not picking on you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We're going to look at some scriptures. I think it's one of the biggest problems with the entire body of Christ. If we were all the same, if we all looked the same, if we all talked the same, instead of getting in our denominations and building our walls up to keep people from touching us, if we would dare dismantle those things, those man-made things that keep the body of Christ separated, let me say to you what would happen. Washington, D.C. and Austin, Texas and Oklahoma City would listen to us better. We would more likely change the world if we acted as one. I'm not saying we need some pope someplace with a funny-looking hat. I'm just saying that we, we, should be, we should let the Bible guide us and understand that the Bible is never, never in favor of individual groups or groups of people acting as though they're the only ones. Even when I disagree with my brothers in the denominations, I don't say they're not Christians. You're not a, you're not a Christian because you're not independent. That would be just like them, wouldn't it? Are you following me? We're not, so I'm not picking on anybody in particular. I'm talking about the whole idea of denominations and denominationalism. Some, some, at some point, we have to stand up and say, this is just wrong, patently wrong. Okay? So we're going to look at a few scriptures and see what Paul had to say about it. I think you all already know. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. If there are no denominations in heaven, they cannot be God's will on earth. This is number 10 on our list of 32 Holler's thesis. I'm going to nail it to the church door when I get done. Praise God. (laughs) Romans 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. My idea here in using this verse of Scripture is that we tend to think carnally when it comes to truth. You'll have a revival take place, and it'll be a great revival, and people will be blessed, and lots of people healed, and lots of people delivered, and wonderful things happen. And then a a week or a month or a year or a decade will go by, and people born out of that revival will all start meeting in boardrooms and say, we need to protect this. We need to protect this. Let's form an organization where if you want to experience what we're experiencing, you can be a part by, you know, and we'll send you a card in the mail or whatever. It's just how it happens. And before long, they're paying more attention to the structure that they built than to the revival that God brought. It happens over and over, and it's happened all throughout history, and remarkable things happened in the revival, but redundant things keep happening when men form their organizations. I uh, heard a story about a rabbi, a Hindu holy man, and a Jehovah's Witness. They had decided they were going to go to an ecumenical meeting together. And after the meeting, they were headed out, and the car broke down. Wound up out in the country, went up to a farmer's house and explained. He said, well, I don't have a phone, and it's getting dark. Maybe tomorrow we can get help, but for tonight, y'all just got to stay here. The rabbi, the Hindu holy man, and the Jehovah's Witness. He said, the problem is, I've got a bunkhouse out in the barn, but two of you can stay in the house, but one of you's got to sleep out in the barn. The rabbi said, I'll go. He goes out there. Two minutes later, he comes. there's a knock at the back door. They open the door. There stands the rabbi. He said, I can't sleep in the barn. There's a pig in the barn. <laughs> so the Hindu holy man says, I'll go. I'll go. It'll be like, you come on in. I'll go. I understand. He goes out there. They shut the door. Get ready for bed. Two minutes later, there's a knock at the back door. There stands the Hindu holy man. He said, I can't stay in there. There's a cow in the barn. Okay, come on in. Jehovah's Witness says, I'll go. He goes out there. They turn off the lights. Two minutes later, there's a knock at the door. They open it up. There stands the pig and the cow. (laughs) 
Seems like nobody really likes denominations. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter one, verse twelve. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twelve. <laughs> First Corinthians one twelve. Now I say this that each of you says, "I am of Paul," or "I am of Apollos." I am of Cephas, meaning the Apostle Peter, or I am of Christ. Back up, verse 12. Do you see, <clears throat> I would be in the category of saying I'm of Paul if I wasn't careful, because I am. But they were taking it to extremes where it was beginning to separate the church. He said, I find that there are divisions among you and you're talking like this, I'm of Paul. How many of you think it's okay to follow Paul? And the other one says, I'm of Apollos. Well, we'd follow him if we had ever known anything he said. <laughs> I, I'm of, uh, what happened? I, I, I'm of uh, Cephas, or the Apostle Peter. Great to follow Peter. Nothing wrong with that, as long as, you know, you're in the right crowd. I'm of Christ. We all follow Christ, don't we? We think we do. Anything wrong with these things? No. But the Apostle Paul's not saying that you shouldn't have identity. He's saying that if you take it to an extreme where it causes you to be separated within the, within the body of Christ, look at verse, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What he says is when you divide yourself, hear me, when you allow yourself to be divided, then what you're saying is, Christ is divided you think you're saying you think you're saying well we have the truth and you all need to come over here with us that's what you think you're saying but what you're really doing is dividing Christ that's what Paul said you're doing and yet every year seems like a new denomination forms how does this happen because we quit reading the Bible and we've grown accustomed to this kind of nonsense Somebody's got to say something. Amen. I mean, I just got to say something. I have to say it. I, I, don't, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but it has to be said. I feel like those two Indian boys out in New Mexico back during the nuclear bomb test. You know, they, they were used to sending smoke signals to each other. Always sending smoke signals. And the day of the nuclear bomb test, whew, one of them turned to the other and said, Man, I wish I had said that. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> don't, you think, don't you think something ought to be said? Amen. I know it seems nuclear, but we've got to say it. Number 11. Number 11. This is our 11th idea. If there are no denominations in heaven, they cannot be God's will on earth. That's, that's number 10. Number 11 is this. It's a simple one, but it's kind of shocking. The book of Genesis is not in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis is not in the Old Testament. Now, wait, I had one preacher refuse to invite me back after I taught this in his church. He won't invite me back. He thinks I stirred up too much trouble by saying the book of Genesis is not in the Old Testament. Huh? The book of genes. Whitney, go up there and take over for Israel. He doesn't know how to... Oh, that is Whitney. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Praise God. We didn't teach spelling at Christ for the nations. We taught theology. Praise God. Amen. <laughs> the book of Genesis is not in the Old Testament. And what we mean by that is we're not saying it's not classed with the books of the Old Testament. I'm not saying it doesn't belong there. It belongs exactly where it is. But it's not part of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant began in, in Exodus. The law was given in Exodus chapter 20. You understand? So there's no way that Genesis could be a part of the Old Covenant because it was before the Old Covenant. And the, the point we're making here is that Paul does not get the doctrine woo, of justification by faith from the law. He gets most of it from the book of Genesis. 
So the seedbeds of what you believe and how you came to righteousness through, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the seedbed for that is not in the law, but it's in Genesis. When Paul constantly refers back to Abraham, how Abraham got his righteousness over and over and over and writes it in Holy Writ, puts it in our New Testament documentation that Abraham was justified by faith 400 years before there was a law. Glory to God. If he got it before there was a law and before Jesus died, then praise be to God, you can have it today since Jesus has died for your sins. There's some good news in this thing. That's why we point that up. There is a big difference between the book of Genesis and all the rest of the Old Testament. A big difference. And that's why I just say it this way. Genesis is not part of the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is defined as the law. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14. 2 Corinthians 3, 12, 13, and 14. This is Pastor Curtis our outreach to Minnesota, pastoring the New River Church up there, praise God. He's not on as great a river as, as we have here, the Red River. He's on something called the Mississippi, I think it is. Anyway, <laughs> amen. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, verse 13. Unlike Moses, wow. Pastor Curtis can preach this. I ought to just save it for him. He'll be here in a few months. Who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. What was passing away? That which he had just received. The law. He had just received it. And he knew it was temporary. And he was trying to hide that from the children of Israel. Verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Did it say that the law helps you see clearly, or did it say that the law blinds you? The law doesn't bring you revelation. The law blinds you. That's why the... That's why they could not get their righteousness by faith under the law. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8. Hebrews 8, 8 says, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Do you understand what covenant he's talking about? Because they continued not in my covenant, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God. And they shall be to me a people. Glory be to God. So the eleventh idea is that Genesis is not in the Old Testament. Meaning the Old Testament was the law. All right, you ready for another one? Doctrine number 12. The original sin was unbelief on Eve's part, but stealing on Adam's part. It's hard to say what the original sin is. The first human that ever sinned was Eve. She, she, she got into unbelief. But for you and I, that that didn't have the impact. For, for, as far as we're concerned, the original sin was in Adam. You understand? The original sin was in Adam because he, when he ate the fruit, he, as the seed bearer, was the one who was going to pass that along to his children. Women do not cause children to be born sinners. I'm here to tell all of you, your mama did not do that to you. Your daddy did that to you. <laughs> Women do not cause children to be born sinners. Men cause it because it started with Adam. No more than this soil out here determines what's going to grow in it. Come on, shout it out. What, what determines what's going to grow in the soil? Seed. 
a seed. The seed determines what's grown there. Not that the soil can't have impact on it, not that mother can't have impact on the children, but the, the, the idea that we were born of a corruptible seed means that we were born of the seed of Adam. Hmm. This is how Jesus escaped having a sin nature. Even though Mary was born of David, corruptible seed, and Jesus took on David's flesh, the, the fact is his father was Almighty God who had no corruption in him. When he spoke that word, it became the seed that was implanted into Mary's womb. Praise be to God. Now that child right there is born holy. Born holy start to finish. Because he can't catch, he can't catch the disease of sin from his mama. Mm -mm. The Bible never once ever said it was Eve's fault. That you and I were sinners. But it says over and over, especially in chapter, five, uh, chapter 6 of Romans, that it was Adam's fault. That we're sinners. So the original sin really was unbelief on her part, but the stealing on his part. I ask my students on a regular basis, I'm going to ask you, what, is the, what was the original sin? Most of the time, if I hadn't already told you, most people will say, rebellion, disobedience. Yeah, but specifically, what was it? Uh, they didn't obey God. Pride. They try to make it something big. Try to make it something big. What it was, was Adam stole a piece of fruit. The fact is, he didn't even steal it. He just ate a piece of stolen fruit. You got two kids at your back fence, climbing up on the fence, they, they take a peach off your favorite tree, and you see them. Is anybody here going to run get your gun and shoot them for it? No, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. If you do anything, you're going to bark at them. Hey, get away from there. That's about the size of it right there. That's about all you're going to do. If that, I'm probably going to go, Mama, look at you. Look here. These kids think they're getting away with something. Look at that. It's kind of cute, but I hope they don't wind up in prison one day. I mean, you know, is that a big deal that somebody steals a piece of fruit? Apparently it was. That's all he did. In fact, in fact, if you saw two of them back there, one of them climbing a fence and getting the fruit, and handing it down to his little brother, and the little brother's eating it, which one are you going to be most, most concerned about? The one that's climbing the fence, right? But Adam had just participated in, in a wrong. And the Bible says, because he sinned, we're born in this condition of sinner. Wow. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. To God. I mean, if I have a list of things that you can do against me, if I just start listing things that I don't want you to do to me, it's going to be a pretty long list before I list stealing a peach off my tree. Before I get to that, I'm going to have a whole bunch of things listed. By the way, keep your hands off my peaches. That's just going to be way down on the list. How many of you are with me? You understand what we're talking about here? It wasn't the severity of the crime. It was just that it had happened at all. With God, there is no... So no, 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 no uh, degrees in measuring sin. Either it is or it isn't. That's why when Christ died, he wasn't dying for every single little thing you ever did. He was dying for your condition. He was really in going back and dying for what Adam had done. He didn't call him the last John Holler. He calls him the last Adam. Meaning that first Adam had sent us to the grave. At last, Adam's going to bring us up out of the grave. Glory to God. Yeah, God. Amen. At first, Adam separated us from God. That last, Adam brought us back to God. Amen. Amen. First, Adam lost our power for us. Jesus restored that power for us. Amen. Not by dealing with individual acts, but by dealing with the condition of sin and sinfulness itself.
The original sin was unbelief on Eve's part. Now, I'm going to tell you about why I think, think it was unbelief on Eve's part. The serpent comes to her and says, Hath God said, well, why would he go to her and not to God? I think I've shared this with you, but I need to. Why, why would he go to her instead of, instead of Adam, I mean? I said that almost right. The thought is right. I think the reason he went after Eve, Brother Greg, instead of, instead of Adam, is because the Bible doesn't say Adam looked something like God. I, you read it in the Hebrew text, it said he was God's image. If God looked in a mirror, what's he going to see? He's going to be looking at Adam. That's what he made Adam like. A representative, a representative of himself in the earth. He had this man looking like him. Why would he not? God ruled heaven. The earth is his footstool. The throne. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. What that means is they're a matching set. But they're a matching set. The footstool looks a lot like the throne. Are you understanding? When God made earth... Why would it not look like heaven? If he made a man that looked like him, why would he not make an earth that looked like heaven? There are rivers there. There are trees there. There's apparently horses there. Jesus is going to be riding one when he comes back. Praise God. Amen. I don't think there's going to be any snakes there. I'm not going to be any snakes on my property. If there's snakes there, I'm taking my cat with me. Amen. No, 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 no. He didn't make it completely separate. He made it look like what, what heaven looks like. And he made Adam look like what he looked like. I think when Lucifer is walking around planet Earth trying to find some way to get into this deal, he must have looked over there, and the first time he saw Adam, it must have struck terror in his heart. It must have struck terror in his heart. I can just see him hiding behind a tree, telling all his little minions, oh, Get back, get back. What is it, boss man? I ain't sure, but I think God is here. Woo, boy. What's he doing here? He looks again, and Eve walks out from behind the bush. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not God. That's that man he was talking about. Because there's that woman. She looked like him. He looked like God. He's the image of God. She's the image of him. Hmm. So he doesn't dare go after Adam. I think he was terrified of Eve, frankly. Or he'd have just accosted her. I think she was one bad motor scooter. <laughs> Praise God. I know something about being married to one of those motor scooters. <laughs> Amen. You reckon Eve was German? I think she might have been German. That's, right. yeah. So he went after Eve as, as the only chance he had. And when they bore children after sinning, their firstborn son became a cold-blooded murderer. Went from something way down on the bottom of the list. Now, if I'm making my list, I want you to understand, killing me is going to be pretty close to the top. That's pretty much the worst thing you can do to me, I guess, right there. Be killing me or killing somebody I loved. Be right up there at the top. Stealing my peach way down here. And in one generation, that sinful condition took him from the least to the very worst. The least kind of rebellion. That's why as a believer, you want to guard your heart. You want to guard your heart. You've been given power over, over the devil. Amen. You want to guard your heart about what you let in. Because it's not going to be satisfied with that one little thing. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I say it's not going to be satisfied with that one little thing you think is no big deal. Because it, it has a, a multiplying effect, an exponential effect, if you will, to try to take you to the worst things that can, can do. Just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. It always leads to other things. Because we're, in our natural man, we're just creatures of habit. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? 
creatures of habit. I heard the other day I need to brush my teeth twice every day. I don't like that. My dentist told me, you need to brush more often. I said, why? I said, I don't get plaque. He said, I know, but you still need to brush. Does my breath smell bad? No, but I know you cleaned it up before you came in here. So I'm starting to brush my teeth more. I'm 59 years old. Got to be told to brush my teeth more. <laughs> yeah, okay. I said, Doc, you ought to be happy. I brush them every day. I used to just brush them like, you know, when I felt like I needed it. <laughs> when I started getting furry, I'd brush them, you know. <laughs> All the women are going, ah! <laughs> How does she kiss him? Uh. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and read it. Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Well done. Well done. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of the, tree of the trees of all the trees of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. So there. She had a good confession. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. We don't have record of God saying that, but it's possible he said it. She was just, I, I kind of think maybe Adam added this just to give her another boundary. You know, just stay away from it. He probably should have said, don't even look at it. But anyway. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Read on. For God knows that in the day you eat, of the, of your, eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pardon me. Pardon me, Mr. Snake. She already was like God. Amen. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. You see what happened? Just before this event, when he first asked her, she saw that tree and she saw it as though it was poison. She said, if I eat that, it'll die. So in her mind, that tree was poison. That's what she believed. But after she listened to the devil, what did she believe? She began to see things differently, didn't she? She began to see the tree looked different than it had just before her vision changed based on what she had heard. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave her husband with her, and he did eat and so forth. Bad story. I've often said that believers are not exempt from hearing the voice of the devil. You're not exempt from the devil talking to you. In fact, he may chase you harder than he chases a hardcore rebel out there. Any believers in the house know what I'm talking about? You're not exempt from hearing the voice of the devil. But you can hear the voice of God. Jesus didn't say you wouldn't hear the devil's voice. He said you won't follow him. He didn't say you wouldn't hear it. He said you won't, they just won't follow his voice. Hear his voice, don't follow it. I wondered why Saul was with his army in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Saul was with his army out on the battlefield, and Goliath was coming up and bellowing out threats and blasphemies against them and their God. David shows up and says, what's going to be done about this guy? They said, well, the king's going to give great riches to the guy that takes him out. What? What? A and his daughter. And free from taxation forever in Israel. You get the king's daughter, you get great wealth, and no more taxes. David should have said, keep the daughter. Keep your money. Just set me free from taxation. I'll make my own money. Come on, all the business people said amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. <laughs> 
I'll get rich myself. You just leave me alone. But he said, well, somebody ought to do this. Somebody ought to do something. So you know the story. I wondered why David was the eighth son of his father, Jesse. The eighth son of his father, Jesse. Now, I'm the second son of my father, James. I had one older brother. My older brother is a great man, a good man, decent man. But he was a terrorist to me. <laughs> Every day of my life, he ensured that I would grow up strong and tough and able to take a beating. <laughs> he, didn't know, he didn't care that I knew how to fight so much. He just wanted to know I could take a beating. <laughs> Consequently, made me not afraid of the older kids. Because I thought, shoot, you can't hurt me. I live with Tony Holler. Beat the daylights out of me. Hurt me. Hit me. Make me say things to him. I learned how to talk because I was the baby. And he was the bully. I wonder about what made David so strong. He had seven brothers like that. I had one. I know what it did to me. Just imagine what he must have been dealing with. He had seven older brothers. Slap, punch, kick, bite, twist. You know, I mean, they're just working on him all the time. Right? That's how it goes. Trip. Oh, Mom, I don't know how he lost the tooth. Could have been that I tripped him, but. He fell into the kitchen table and broke it. The thought is this, I couldn't understand three of David's brothers were out there, number one, number two, and number three. They were out there on that battlefield with Saul. Why weren't these bad dudes standing up ready to take on Goliath? Eliab comes to David, comes to David and says, turns him around by the shoulder, and he says, oh, you're just out here to see the blood. Oh, really? I don't see anybody fighting to get any blood on them. Is there not a cause? Looks out there, there's that giant. Send me a man! David and Eliab stand there nose to nose. I don't understand why somebody's not fighting. I, I couldn't understand it either. And then I slowed down and reread the beginning of the story. It said when David arrived on the battlefield that that Goliath was in day 40 of making his threats. 40 days of making his threats. 40 days he had come out there. Send me a man. Well, you know who he's wanting, right? He's wanting Saul. He's wanting that big tall guy. Send me a man if there is a man. And Saul wouldn't go out. And because that fear had gripped Saul, he heard it day two. He heard it day three. He might have been planning some sort of, some sort of plan of, you know, charting some sort of plan of attack on day one or day two. But he heard it day three and day four and day 10 and day 20 and day 30. And just went on and on and on. And they heard it so much, they began to see the battle differently. They had once seen themselves as God's people, unbeatable, able to take out even giants because they had in years gone by. Now here's just one giant. This is not a whole city of giants. It's not a whole army of giants. It's just one dude. But they listened to what he said, and it changed what they saw. <laughs> they listened to what he said, and it changed what they saw, and therefore what they believed. And none of that great fighting force was willing to fight. Until the shepherd boy, who was ready to fight the first day he heard it. What? Well, I'll take your head, you big loud. Who do you think you are talking like that about God's people? I'll come out there and take your head off you. He just starts talking back. How you going to do that, boy? Well, I got this here rock. I got the sling. The king even gets him over there and says, David, how are you going to do that, son? You're just a kid. 
This guy's been fighting since before you were born. What's wrong with you? Sir, can I permission to speak, sir? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, there was this bear that came out. This bear came out and got one of my lambs. You think I let him get away with it? No. I chased him down. And I, I love the way the King James says it, smote him and slew him. In Oklahoma vernacular, he caught him and beat him to death. Just beat him to death. So a lion rose up, took one of my lambs. Did I think I let him get away with it? No, he chased a lion down, beat him to death. Retrieved his lamb and took it back home. And he says, O king, this giant will be like one of them. Just let me at him. Golly. Then he finally turns him loose, lets him go. Wants to put his armor on him. David says something like this. He doesn't say it, but I know he must have been thinking it. You see, because the previous chapter, this is 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel, the prophet, came out and anointed David king of Israel. Now, he wasn't the king, but he was the anointed king. So he didn't have the kingdom yet, but he did have the... He didn't have the kingdom yet, but he did have the anointing. And it doesn't matter if your kingdom has manifested yet. As long as you've got the anointing, your kingdom is coming, praise God. And you do not fight on the basis of what you're going to be. You fight on the basis of what you have right now. Amen. He had the anointing. Saul was trying to put his kingdom authority on him. He said, I don't need that. I've not proven that. And I know what David was thinking. I don't need your armor. I done got your anointing. And he did. This is all I need, a sling and a stone. I don't know how much time David had spent target practice. I don't know. All I know is it doesn't matter if he was that good or if it had an angel helping him. To the giant, it all looked the same. I've been bitten by, I've been beaten by a pipsqueak teenager. Him right in the right between the eyes, and down the had the dude had one spot on him that wasn't one spot on him that wasn't covered. And I know on his way down, I know on his way down, he's thinking about those drawings when he showed the he showed the blacksmith how to make his helmet. I know he's thinking, ooh, I should have put something right there. I wish I could redo that. <laughs> Fairly shook the ground, no doubt, when he landed. And he landed face first. Wham. David runs up there. The guy can't hardly, you know, he's not dead yet, but David runs up there, pulls this giant sword out of, out of his own sword and hacks off his head and reaches down and gets his head and shows everybody. Yeah. Told you. <laughs> oh, by the way, I told you. Don't feed your flesh to the fowls of the air. Hmm. I know it's a gruesome story, but the truth is, David heard something that Samuel had said, and it changed his life. He saw himself differently. His brothers and all out on the battlefield, they heard what the devil had said, and it changed how they saw things. Do you understand? That's why it's so important in your life to guard what you hear. I know you need to watch the news. Can I say, don't watch it for two hours straight. If you need to hear it, great. Fine, but don't let them grind that in. Don't let day after day after day after day after day of unbelief and fear go into you. Pick up the Word of God and begin to read it out loud to yourself. Find those promises. Read Romans chapter 8 and see what God has to say about you today. Amen. When they tell you that the economy is going down, you just say out loud with your mouth, that my economy is not going down, praise God, because I don't live on the basis of this economy. I'm on the economy of heaven. Hallelujah. I have tapped into God's resources, and I'm here. I'm here through my, through my offerings. I'm here through my giving. I'm here through my first fruits. I'm here because in the name of Jesus, I have won the victory, and I act like I've got the victory. Amen. Praise God. Use your mouth and convince your own heart to believe the right thing. Are you with me today? Am I helping you at all? I hope so. Praise God. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this because not very long ago I talked to you about this next thing. Number 13 is Christ bled five times, not seven. He bled five times for your redemption. And why that's important is because it really expresses grace. Christ died for our sins. It expresses grace. There are five bleedings that have to do with our, with our sanctification, with our holiness, with our righteousness, with our just, justified stance before God. He bled in his circumcision. He bled when he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He bled when they scourged him, when they put a, pl- a crown of thorns on him, and when he was crucified. Now that crucifixion itself was a five-point bleeding. He had a wound in his right hand, a wound in his left hand, a wound in his right foot, a wound in his left foot, and a spear in his side. He had a wound there. So when you think of it, the Hebrews chapter 13, ver- ver- chapter 13, verse 15, could we get that up on the board, Hebrews 13, 15? The sacrifice Jesus made was five and five. I want, to, I want you to hold up your hands. I'm going to show you something real quick. You may have seen this already, but you need five and five. Okay, five and five. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice. The sac- oh, our sacrifice is not a sacrifice of blood. His was a sacrifice of blood. What's ours a sacrifice of? Praise. A sacrifice of praise. And when you offer it up, lifting up holy hands... A sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to God. Your lips giving thanks to God. Your hands lifted. And when you think five and five, his sacrifice, and you look toward heaven with your hands in the air, I want you to see what you see. You see the grace of God that came to you. You see the sacrifice that Jesus made. And then you returning a sacrifice of praise on behalf of your own heart. Amen. Glory. Every time I lift my hands nowadays, I think about that. I think about his sacrifice. I'm thankful for his sacrifice. I'm thankful for what he did for me. Amen. I would take time to document all that, but not too awful long ago, I already taught you that. Amen. And I'm getting to this. I'm going to finish with this, and I promise not to be long. Number 14. Nineveh was spared because they... You're afraid to say, aren't you? (laughs) Let's take our Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day. Now, he's he's already heard God speak to him and tell him to go say, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Did you know what was not in the message? Did you notice what was not in the message that God told him he had to say? What was not there was, unless you repent. He didn't get to say that. He knew that. He said, I knew this. This is why I live. In chapter 4, he later said, this is why I ran in the first place. I know you to be a forgiving God. I knew if I, did, if I went in there and said, the 40 days, you're going to be destroyed, they would repent and you would forgive them. I knew it. But you wouldn't let me say unless you repent. See, prophets couldn't editorialize. They couldn't add to it. Couldn't take away from it. And God did not tell him, go say unless you repent. He just told him, go tell them. 40 days and they're dead. Okay. So you can understand. Because if he got it wrong, he looks like a false prophet. If what he said doesn't come to pass, he's considered a false prophet. So he took off running. He said, I'm not telling them that. I'm not telling them that. He jumps on a ship headed for Tarshish. I'm I'm convinced that was Tarsus. Others say it was someplace in Spain. I don't accept that. He was headed to Tarsus, where Paul was from, which is Asia Minor, okay? He's headed out there. He gets thrown overboard. He gets straightened out. I heard Mike Warnke put, it, put the story like this. He said, you know, I, I, God is a good stager. God can stage your ministry. He can help you get started. Jonah's been in the belly of a whale for three days. His skin is bleached completely white. He's got seaweed for hair. His clothes are half digested. And he comes walking along the beach, and there's a Ninevite surf fisherman out there. 
and he hears footsteps behind him, and he turns around, and there stands a guy who's been in the belly of a whale for three days. And the guy looks at him and says, Repent. So, well, <laughs> seemed to work pretty good for Nineveh. They all did. <laughs> but he didn't say repent. What he said was, you're going to die. Now, the inclination and the, and the, the connected intended uh, meaning was that they would repent. You don't get a message like that from God. Everybody knows if God tells you that, he's not just trying to get you to be fearful for the next 40 days. He's trying to get you to, you know, get your heart right. Repent was not the message. Die was the message. You're going to die. Look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh repented. No, that's not what it said, is it? You know, I read the entire book numerous times. Not one time does it ever say they repented. Not once. Not one time does it say they repented. Nowhere does it say they repented. It says they believed God. And they, their faith then caused them to proclaim a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Look at verse 6. Then came the word to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and, and sat in ashes. Does it seem like they're repenting? It doesn't say they repented. It said they believed. Faith caused this. Not sorrow. Believing God caused this. Let's read the Bible like it says it. Verse 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. Everybody's fasting. Next verse. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and, and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Read on. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? Oh, that's the same word in Hebrew for repent. We get this all goofed up, don't we? Relent, relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Look at verse 9. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented. King James says repent. Who has a King James version of the Bible? Who has a King James version of the Bible? We don't have any real theologians in this entire church. <laughs> what does it say, baby? God repented. I know that flies in the face of religious thinking. We don't like to think that God can repent and that God needed to repent, but he did. He didn't say they repented. It said God repented. Why is that never preached? It's what the Bible says. It's what Jonah said. God repented. God saw their works that turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Verse 11. It didn't say that God always had the plan all along. Well, he was just testing them to see. That's not what the Bible said. That's what the preacher said. That's not what the Bible said. The Bible said God changed his mind. Or repentance doesn't mean anything. You follow me? He saw that words and did not do what he said he was going to do. Is that the end of the chapter? He did not do. God repented. God repented. Now, let me, let me be fair. When Jesus spoke of this, he said the reason Nineveh was not destroyed is because they repented. Jesus said it. Well, what's with Jesus? Doesn't he know what the Bible says? Here's what Jesus believes. Jesus believes that believing God is repentance. That's, all he, that's the only way you can de define that. That believing God has built in repentance in it. If you believe God, you're going to start changing. You understand where we're coming from? Let's use our heart for trust rather than sorrow so much over what we did wrong. Let's keep talking about our future. Faith takes you forward. Faith is not the substance of things you wish had happened. Faith is the substance of things 
hoped for. Faith is out there in front. And that changed, praise God. It's the difference between punishment and correction. We never punished our kids for what they did. We corrected them for their future, praise God. We had to make some adjustments. Now, to their behinds, it felt exactly the same thing. Their cabooses could not tell if it was correction or punishment. But we made sure they knew, we're not mad at you for what you did, but we must bring this correction for your future. You understand? Repentance is all about the past. Faith is about where you're going, praise God. Repentance is about where you've been. But faith is about where God's taking you, glory to God. You follow me? So Nineveh was saved because they believed God. And Jesus called that belief repentance. Ah. Repent and repentance in every form of the word is used 60 times in the New Testament. All but just a handful of them are in the Gospels, Jesus talking to the covenant people. While faith appears in the New Testament alone 484 times. I'm talking about faith and believing, believeth all the forms of the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. All the forms of that word. 484 times. And repentance is rarely in the New Testament. And virtually every time it's used, it's talking to Christians. Virtually every time it's used, it's talking to Christians. Not talking to sinners. Talking to Christians. Except when Jesus was talking to the covenant people. You following me here? These are people who already believed in God. Already believed in God. Already believed that the Bible was for them. That they weren't living it. I say that the message of repentance is a strong message that we ought to preach. But let's, let's make sure we preach it to the right people. You tell a hardcore sinner out there he needs to repent. Well, he, he might get saved from that. He might. He might. But you really ought to do him a greater service and tell him to believe that Jesus died for his sins. Then love is going to rush in. Hope is going to rush in and start filling in all those gaps. He'll only feel bad about his sins for a little while. But when love heals what made him so bad, when love comes in and heals him, then glory to God, he'll never go back. And Christ dying for our sins and being buried and rising from the dead the third day according to the scriptures, that's what makes us know God loves us. If he would give us his son, he must really love us. I don't want you to look at two people and say, God loves you. Come on, look at people. God loves you. Amen. Even dialing, praise God. Amen. Amen. Will you bow your heads just for a minute? Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for all that you're sharing here with us. We thank you. Thank you for a courageous people who are willing and able to hear these messages. Able to hear these challenging thoughts. Change our mind. Help us to repent as we hear these, these things. We want to be more like you in the earth as you have created us like you. We want to be able to express that likeness to a world that desperately needs a witness. I'm asking that you bless your people today. Bless them with spiritual solitude and understanding concerning these truths. I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, knowing Christ deeply, intimately, will come upon everyone here who heard this message today and that it will change their lives for the better. Thank you, Lord, for a people who have teachable hearts. I believe that this seed fell into good soil today and will bring forth some 30, some 60, and some 100. In Jesus' matchless name. And now with your heads bowed, does anybody here in this place say, look, I heard what you said, but I'm not sure that I'm even a Christian. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I, I want to be saved. I need to know. I need to know. This is the greatest invitation any church can ever offer someone, is to come into the family of God and be born anew. Coming into the family of God and being born anew simply means that you, from the heart, believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess Him as Lord. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's just that simple. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I need you to pray for me. I'm not sure, but I want to be. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you right now. That's all I'm going to ask you to do is raise your hand. And that will, that will say, God, you hear my heart. You see my need. 
Are you here today needing prayer to know the Lord? Because He loves you. He'll take you just like you are. I'm not saying that you need to clean up anything. I'm saying if you'll take this step of faith, He'll begin to clean up all that needs to be cleaned in you. And He'll make you brand new. Inside out. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Miss Anna, I want you to come up here and be ready to pray for the people. If you have needs today of any kind, if you need prayer for your body, if you need prayer for some situation you're, you're facing, we're here to believe God with you. Miss Ann is one of the strongest women of prayer that I've ever known. She ex- knows how to release her faith and good things happen. How many of you have already uh, experienced some of the ministry that this girl has in her? Amen. Praise God. So uh, if you have needs today, I want you to stand up on our feet. And if you, if you have any kind of need, you can... You can come right now as we sing this song.